that basically that group, there was a little bit of change once in a while, but all through last year, this time when we were locked down and um, just providing uh, church only online, uh, we had basically one band for how many months? Every week, huh? Six, six, eight months. They came back faithfully every Sabbath and were, were leading worship for us because we, we had to try to keep our numbers down, the number of folks who were being exposed and exposing and all those kinds of things. And uh, so I just thank you all. Uh, you guys are mostly all that band. And so thank you. And thank you for the, the gift of the Revelation song at the end. One of my favorites. Asher, welcome to the family. We're glad you're here wherever you are. There you are. Don't go anywhere. We want to call you up at the end of the service, all right? Um, I've been talking to you about evidences for your faith in the resurrection and in in the crucifixion of Jesus. And I've been quoting to you from uh, the book that uh, Lee Strobel wrote um, called The Case for Christ. And so I decided to put up uh, just a a little note of where this information comes from. It's It's a worthy book if you haven't read it. It's been a long time. It's worth reading again. Um, in his search through these things, remember Lee Strobel started as a non-believer. He came to this with the attempt, in an attempt to prove his wife wrong and make her get out of this crazy thing that she'd gotten into, the Christian church. And as he began his search and research, he went through a great deal of things. He was a newspaper guy, and he was a legal editor for, for the for the. Uh, Chicago Sun-Times. And as such, he had a lot of background in research and evidentiary importance of research and discovery. And one of the things he checked was the theory that Jesus faked his death or that he swooned on the cross, that that he never actually died. And so he went to see a doctor named Alexander Metherell here in L.A. And as he went and talked to this doctor, he asked specifically, can you explain to me what the 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 experience of that day would have done to Jesus. And I will I will spare you the gruesome details of it all. But Metherell told them that by the time he had been beaten, he had lost enough blood that you can hear the, in the story, as the story is told, as he walks forward carrying pro- probably just the crossbar of the cross, he faints under the weight and falls. Remember, he faints and passes out or falls and under the weight and they have to get someone else to carry it. He said that's because of the blood loss from being beaten. It's before he even arrives at the crucifixion itself. And Strobel said, well, okay, I, yeah, I understand all of that. But, you know, there, the long time ago, like in 1932, the Harvard uh, Theological Review said that he, they didn't even actually nail people to crosses in the first century. They just tied them to the cross. And so this whole business about nailing them to the cross is, is fallacious, isn't it? Luckily, Dr. Maradura had, had done his research. He was not without an answer. And he told him, told Strobel of something he hadn't read. That in 1968, and the research continued through 1970, a group of people who had been killed during the, uh, the siege of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, under Tiberius, a, a group of them were found in a, in a large grave in Jerusalem. And um, 
in the midst of all that, most people had been killed in other ways, but there was one person who had been crucified. And on this crucified remains, in these crucified remains, the skeletal remains, they found that he had been actually nailed to the cross. And they found a seven-inch long nail that was still in his heels and still had a piece of olive wood, olive wood stuck on the end. I tell you this not to give you something frightening or traumatic, but to give you another anchor for your faith. That what we're talking about over these last few weeks is a real event that happened in a real place, in a real time. And the more we dig through the historical references provided in the Gospels, the more the Gospels prove true. I have, uh, in researching this week, I, I took a look at some things from the Harvard Theological Review just to see if they still had this out there in their archives online. I didn't want to dig long enough to find the archives, but I found an article that referenced this 1932 study. And the Harvard Theological Review made its own uh, mea culpa for their earlier statement and actually quoted the archaeological discoveries that were found uh, back in the late 60s, early 70s. So I just... As we start down the conversation today about the resurrection, uh, I just want to remind you that your faith is not based on some mythical thing, some blow of the wind through the Judean desert. It is based on historically verifiable facts that have been researched and researched and researched mostly by people who didn't believe them. And Strobel is one in a long line of people who have come to faith by trying to prove that Jesus didn't actually live. As we open the word today, I want to ask you to join me for a word of prayer. We are grateful that we do not follow cunningly devised fables, but that our faith is in a real person. That our faith is in Jesus, who was so significant to history that we count history from his birth. And whose death and resurrection were so important to those living in Rome who would choose to follow him that many thousands gave their lives because of what they believed, what they knew, and what they'd experienced in Jesus. I pray today that 2,000 years later, we would be somehow courageous enough to stand in our very secular society on our faith in a real Jesus. Amen. So, I want to I start. Today we're talking about the fact that this was always the plan. We're talking about this, the crucifixion and the resurrection were always the plan. 
This was always the plan. And I want to take you back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. When the first confrontation over the sin of that day is met by God. So this is the day that sin first entered. This is the day that Adam and Eve went to the devil's fruit stand and decided to have a snack. It's the day that sin entered the, the, the planet and the lives of humanity. On that day, the very first day when sin was here, God told Adam and Eve what the answer would be. It's, it's a little obtuse, frankly, but it would be really hard to let them in on the whole story that day. It would have been way more than they could handle. It would have blown them away. If he would have told them, well, it's going to be several thousand years from now and then a child will be born who will actually be of divine nature and that divine child will in fact die on a cross. If he had told them that whole story, they, would have, they wouldn't have been able to handle it. This is what he told them though. And those of us who have the benefits of looking back at it, get it. Because there it is, right there in Genesis chapter 3, speaking now to Satan himself. God says, to the serpent, to Satan, you will bruise his heel. That someone who is coming, this, this person who is to come, the seed of the woman, a human, you will bruise his heel. You know the snake, you know the idea of a snake biting your feet, that's the, the concept here, you will bruise his heel, you'll have a shot at him. But he will bruise your head. The answer to Adam and Eve right there in the garden, the day they sinned is that one day Satan will actually pay. One day Satan will actually be destroyed. They knew, we all know that you destroy a snake by crushing its head. Adam and Eve had not seen death. So this is very minuscule in its revelation. But this story grows by the time their children are there actively involved in what's going on around them. We find an act of worship where they are actually building an altar and sacrificing a lamb. The story is getting clearer to Adam and Eve, even in that first statement. But I want you to understand, this has always been the plan. The crucifixion and the resurrection were not a late idea. They were the first entry in the discussion. The very first time it comes up, this is the plan. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul is explaining to the Ephesians what he wants them to understand about God. And just this is his introduction. This is right at the beginning of the book. He's basically just said hello. He dives right into the deep into the theological pond in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4, even before the world was made. So right there in Genesis chapter 3, on the first day of sin, Adam and Eve got the word. But the Bible says that before, before the foundations of the earth were laid, Even before the world was made, God had already chosen us to be His through our union with Christ. I want you to catch who chose you. There's a lot of talk about Jesus, the wonderful Jesus, and God, the judgmental, mean God. And it's just not true. They're not divided like that. They are the one one in the same being. In Christ, before the foundation of the world, God chose you. God chose you. God had already chosen us to be His through the union with Christ so that we would be holy and without fault before Him because of His love. 
Before the foundations of the world, God already knew what was going to happen. The day when Adam and Eve walked up to the tree and took the fruit and ate it was not a day when God went, Oh no, I didn't see this coming. That day doesn't exist. God sees the end from the beginning. He's not surprised by the events that come about. And so the plan was laid down before man sinned to rescue man from the decisions of that sin. The plan was laid down before the foundations of the earth by God because of His love. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And so does God. He loves me, for the Bible tells me so. Because of His love, God has always always been trying to get you into heaven, not keep you out. Please put this in your long-term memory. God is not trying to find some, some mistake in the paperwork to keep you out of heaven. He's not looking for that one little thing you forgot about to keep you out of heaven. He's trying to get humans into heaven. He's trying to rescue us. And the cross demonstrates, if nothing else in the history of mankind demonstrates, demonstrates what he was doing. It demonstrates how serious he is about getting you and me home. From before the foundations of the earth, motivated by his love, God chose you. That that person who had sinned, that person who had walked away, that person who had done terrible things sometimes, that person who can't stay focused on righteousness chose you because of his love for you. And he he designed the process knowing its cost. The crucifixion is not a surprise to God. Jesus came during the time of the Romans at least partly because they were crucifying people to kill them. Because a death like that, for you and for me, is a massive demonstration of God's love. Does that, does that cross over the, 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 the barrier of your brain that tra- tries to prevent the Holy Spirit to talk to you? You are so valuable to God that when choosing the time, He chose a time when the kind of death Jesus would suffer would be recognized throughout history as an extreme demonstration of God's love. It's crazy. We belong to a religion that uses a symbol of death to represent what we believe. I've mentioned before from this platform, it would be like putting an electric chair up as your symbol. This this was such a ghastly way of dying that The Romans did not allow their own citizens to be crucified. 
they considered it beneath a Roman citizen for them to be crucified. It may be why Peter is crucified and Paul seems to have been beheaded. Because Paul was a Roman citizen. And it was against the law to crucify a Roman. I have heard people say there are worse ways to die. I am not trying to build a scale here. I'm just trying to say that this becomes such a strong demonstration of God's love. That we literally took it as our symbol. It wasn't the first symbol. The first symbol was a fish. Ichthus. Representing the testimony of those who believe that Jesus is God. Jesus is Lord. But the cross soon became. The thing that most told the world. That God loved them. The stakes are really high. The stakes in the decision process are really high. Uh, in, In Revelation chapter 13 verse 8. The same, the same concept, the, the, the idea that this has gone on from time immemorial is highlighted in the descriptions of, of the beast power rising at the end of time and the, this, this whole thing that we've been kind of focusing a little more on in our head as we think about the present time when government has made certain things about religion un, uh, untenable. And it just, it's, been, it's been brought before our attention a lot lately, but here it is in the context of eternity. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, the beast of Revelation, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain from the foundations of the world. The plan has always been the plan, but I want you to see the stakes of the plan in the verse. The stakes of this plan, the stakes here, that anyone who hasn't accepted Jesus' sacrifice for their sins will fall for the faith. I want to speak to those of you who are still still waffling. Don't waffle anymore. Choose to have your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. When Asher and I were studying a few months ago when we were talking about grace and the covering of God and His grace... One of the things we talked about was when you accept the grace of God as your covering, the sacrifice of Jesus as the sacrifice that was made for you, when that, when that happens, when you make that your own by faith, He writes your name in this book. He writes your name in this book. When you get to Revelation chapter 20 and they open the books, it refers to this book again. The saved are listed in the Lamb's book of life. But I want to take that another step. Is there someone you know and love whose name is not written there? Pray for them. Because sometimes you being close to them makes it hard for them to listen to you. But pray for them that God might bring somebody who they will listen to. And if they will listen to you, if, that's, if you're that person, would you point them to Jesus and just tell them the cross is a real thing, the crucifixion really happened, and so did the resurrection. You know, to not believe in the resurrection, you have to believe that Jesus somehow got out of this thing. That either the body was stolen by the disciples from the Romans, which is a long shot, or that Jesus, who faked his death, got up, unwrapped himself, went over to this big rock, rolled it away, 
overcame the Roman guard, snuck away while having holes in his hands and his feet, having been beaten in his back until his back looked like some kind of piece of meat. And that guy went to the disciples and made them courageous and willing to die. Let alone survived his wounds. It's just a story that when you dig down into its, its elemental facts, the story rings more true than the stories that people tell trying to disavow it. The stakes are real high. The stakes are real high. And the offer is tremendous. First Peter, the Apostle Peter, takes this same theme up. Jesus indeed was foreordained. Foreordained. This plan was ordained before. That's all it means. Before it was ordained. He was foreordained. So the coming of Jesus was foreordained. The personhood of Jesus was foreordained. The, the fact that God would take human flesh was foreordained. The crucifixion was foreordained. It was all foreordained. The entire plan was foreordained before the foundations of the world. So before God said, let there be light, this plan was in place. Before He began to, to shape the planet by moving the water here and the dry land there, this was in place. It was foreordained before the foundations of the world, but was manifested in these times for who? For you, for me, for us. Showed up here in this first century time, in this 2,000 years ago time, for us. Showed up to make this foreordained plan clear. He who showed up for you, who through Him believe in God, who because of it, believe in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. I've had an interesting week. I've shared this with a couple of Bible study groups that I take part in. I've had an interesting week this with my devotional life and my personal walk with God. Um, it's easy for me, I don't know if it is for other pastors, it is easy for me, I think it is for other pastors, to sort of take the weight of what's happening in the church on yourself as your responsibility. And I had not realized that I had been doing that for months and months and months through all of this craziness that we've been going through. And I was reading, actually wrapping up one of my the devotionals. I read several on uh, version over time. And I was wrapping up, and the author of this devotional, as he was kind of closing this bit, said, Have you taken upon yourself a weight or a responsibility that truly only belongs to God. And immediately, I thought of my gathering or accepting or declaring myself responsible for what happened at church. And I don't just mean responsible for getting ready to preach every week. No, that's the least of the worries. 
but responsible for each one of you, responsible for each of your decisions, responsible for whether you show up or whether you're at home, responsible for whether the church bills get paid, responsible for, responsible for, responsible for. And in the midst of that realization, the just the whisper of the Holy Spirit that that pastor who'd written this devotional spoke, the Holy Spirit spoke just quietly that it was not, is not, my responsibility. And I physically felt lifted. And what the, the image, the picture that was sort of quickly flashed in my brain was a small church in Fremont that Brenda and I both grew up in. And I remembered the pastors who had been there. And I remembered as a 16, well, 13 through about 17-year-old boy, I remembered thinking, I liked those guys. But it was the people in the church that brought me in the church. It was the people in the church who loved me into following Jesus. Sabbath afternoons at someone's house when somebody would talk about Jesus and talk about their experience. Being greeted by Mary Brown every week who took the time to learn the name of the new kid. Sitting in the seats with the other kids whom I had begun to know. I've told you before, my, my motivations were not spiritual. They were based on the fact that the girls who were present. But I was being loved by the church anyway. And through them, I was seeing the love of God. And Peter is saying that when you come to an understanding of what God is doing for you, your faith and hope are in God. Your faith, your personal faith and hope are in God. And the preacher's personal faith and hope are in God. And the church is just a bunch of people whose personal faith and hope are in God. But it is a powerful thing when a bunch of people start putting their faith and hope in God. It is transformative to the lives who rub up against it. And I can tell you from personal testimony that that is the truth of how church works. Preachers are not entirely inconsequential, at least I hope not. But the people in the church are what makes the impact in the world. Again, the local church is the hope of the world. And that's you. And that's me as a player coach. That's Pastor Marlene and Pastor Tim as player coaches. No one just coaches in this game. Everybody plays and coaches. Paul speaking to Timothy. Trying to help him understand how to become 
a pastor. He says, God who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ before time began. Grace was provided before time began. Grace was not waiting on the crucifixion because grace already knew the crucifixion was coming. Grace from God was not waiting on sin because grace was already laid out for when sin took place. Grace was not God's idea when Adam and Eve fell. Grace was God's idea because He knew Adam and Eve were going to fall. The plan of God's intervention, His hand in time, to open a way that sin had blocked. That plan was laid down with those other plans before the foundation of the earth. God's grace stretches back to the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve were standing in front of the tree and they chose to believe what Satan was telling them. They chose to distrust God, to trust their own thinking and to trust this snake. And from that moment, grace was applied. From that moment, grace became very real and very necessary. Grace was the plan before the foundations of the world. When you read about the sanctuary in the Old Testament, remember it's a display of grace. Not of the intervention of the blood of a lamb, but the intervention of the lamb who was to come. These were all symbols pointing to what you already have experienced because you live post-crucifixion and resurrection. John trying to help us understand that God has always been present in Jesus. That this whole thing has always been the plan takes us back when he's describing to you and me, the people who weren't there, the people who didn't have an eyewitness account to talk to, to somebody that was present with Jesus, saw him raised, saw him die. They, they didn't have any of that. John is writing his book to us, to the generations that would come afterward. When he's writing the book, he starts the book up with, off with John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as the only begotten of the Father. He would write in chapter 17 when he's describing what's going on with Jesus as he's recording Jesus' prayer to the Father on our behalf. He writes in verse 24, Father, I want these whom you have given me to be with me where I am. Remember he tells the disciples right after Peter denies, or after he tells Peter he's going to deny him. If you, if you take out the chapter marks, this is much more powerful. If you take out the chapter divisions, Peter deny, says, he tells Peter he's going to deny him. And then he says, don't worry about it. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you unto myself. That where you, Peter, may, are, are, that you, Peter, might be with me. Where I am, you might also be. 
Because grace was extended before the sin took place. Assurance was in place before the sin happened. The covering of God is not waiting for your sin. The covering God is provided to carry you from the moment you accept it to the moment you're reborn in your own resurrection and restoration. Verse 26, he says, I have revealed you to them. When you open the New Testament and you read the words of Jesus, he's, he's revealing God to you, to me. I have revealed you to them and I will continue to do so. Then your love for me will be in them and I will be in them. And then some kid will come to the church. Some grandma will come to the church. Some friend of yours will show up in church and people in church will have Jesus in them. And when with the Jesus in them will have the love that God has for Jesus and for them in them and it just starts to spill like a cup full. A cup full of water just starts to spill over on people because when love fills you up, the only thing you have to do with it is give it away. Because when you give love away, you have a greater capacity for it to be refilled again. And you have a greater capacity to experience it for yourself. And you just start giving it away. See, this is the plan. This has always been the plan. It's always been the plan. The man whom God knew was going to flow to fall would be rescued by God. And then they would tell somebody. And 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 eventually you'd hear. And I'd hear. And we would tell somebody. And they would tell somebody. And wherever the people of God have scattered, for whatever reason, economic or persecution, wherever the people of God have gone, they've taken it with them. And they, they've taken this love that God revealed to them through Jesus, that He'd given to them, and the, the implanted heart of Jesus that was internalized by them, And they've told somebody. And in that way, crazy, there's no way to draw an org chart for this. There's no way to say, well, you're going to be in charge of this, and you're going to be in charge of that, and you're going to be in charge of the other. Because no one's in charge but God. And he has this wild plan that all is all dependent on you and I accepting his grace and his love and the transformation he offers and telling somebody else. It's crazy. But the stakes are so high that from the foundations of the earth, God was willing to lay out a plan where he would, he would be nailed to a cross in Rome and under the power of the Romans. And that he would die. That, that body, that human body would suffer all of the turmoil of that crucifixion and be thrown into a tomb like every other dead human. But he wouldn't stay. And coming out would demonstrate the authority of God over death and the ability of God to give life. And the church would then be able, those 12 apostles, those 120 inner circle, the the who knows, maybe five, six hundred people who, 
who were all followers of Jesus, the rabbi from Nazareth, began to realize that Jesus was, in fact, the life-giving Messiah. And taking that on and in themselves, began to tell other people. Before the world was made, God had already chosen you to be his. And he's chosen your neighbor, your friend, and your family too. He's just waiting for them to choose him. The, all, the, all the balls are in our court. It's a crazy plan. At the end of the interview that, <coughs> that I was telling you about earlier, that Lee Strobel had with Alexander Metherell, Dr. Metherell. Strobel had heard all the facts and he was pretty, pretty satisfied with the answers. And he had, you know, hit him with the Harvard study. He had hit him with the idea that Jesus swooned. He had hit him with the idea that the disciples had stolen the, the body. He had hit him with everything that he could. And the doctor said, no, the, the, the realities of what took place that day were unsurvivable. That these men were experts at murder. And they would lose their own life if the person that they were crucifying ever escaped. So they had big stakes in the game as well. And so Strobel had spent a couple hours talking to him about how. how the crucifixion took place and how the disciples were converted and how. And they were getting ready to leave and kind of wrapping things up. And Strobel asked the question, the question that would become the hinge, I think, of his own discovery of faith. He said, uh, now I, 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 I don't care about your, your PhDs and your... And I don't care about your MD. I don't, I don't care about your, your expert opinion right now. I, I want to ask you a different question. I want to ask the man, Alexander Metherall. I want to ask the man a question. And he said, Dr. Metherall, kind of lean forward into this next question. And he said, I get everything that you've said so far. I, get under, I understand, okay? He died. So what I don't understand is why. Why he didn't argue his case. When he had a willing judge in Pilate. Why he allowed himself, if he's all of this, to be beaten by the Romans like that, and to be dragged to the crucifixion, to be crucified, to die, to be buried. Why did he do that? Methero took a minute. He said, in, a, in the simplest form, the answer is love. It's always been the plan that love wins. It's always been the plan. For God so loved the world That before he created it, 
He gave his only begotten son. Who is not some being created for the task, but is equally a part of the Godhead. So that whoever believed in him would have eternal life. That's a plan. It's a plan the world needs to hear about. It's a plan we all need to invest our heart in. It's a plan we need to remember when we start to fail. When we start to doubt. When we question whether we can be loved and forgiven. Remember that the person who died on the cross was not just a person. He suffered everything a person that suffers and he lived the life that a person lives, but he was the exact representation of God in human flesh. And what motivated God to do that was how much he loved you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this is such a big story. And the idea that the world is dependent on us telling them about you feels heavy. Lord, I pray that you would help us to know that what we're really doing is just loving. Sometimes self-sacrificially. And sometimes responsively. But we're just loving. Help us to remember that that was your motivation. That was your plan. It was the plan before the foundations of the earth. It's always been the plan. In Jesus' name. Because of his sacrifice.